I'm going to encourage you now to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I asked Jeff if he would read from James this morning because it really sets up what Paul is going to open up for us as we come to our next section in the book of Colossians. So question for you. If you had to guess, how many words on average do you say each day? Do you have a number in mind? Well, I had to look this up. And according to LinkedIn, which apparently is the font of all things speaking, uh, they tell us that the average person speaks 7,000 words a day. 7,000 words a day. This sermon is 3,500 words. So I'm going to be through half of my quota before noon today, and my wife will have to help me not talk too much the rest of the day. Now, this sermon itself uh, is, is going to be opening up for us Colossians chapter 3. According to one website, um, a human being on average, if we added up those 7,000 words a day, a human being on average will speak 860.3 million words in his or her lifetime. 860.3 million words. Now, that's a huge number. How do we wrap our minds around that? Um, well, if we took the King James version of the scriptures, that would be like reading through that out loud 1,110 times. That's how many words on average we will speak in a lifetime. Or we could take the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is on the screen here, all 32 volumes of it. Now, how many of you even know what the Encyclopedia Britannica is? Okay, hey, actually more than I thought. I think many of our college students are on break this week and, you know, printed encyclopedias are a thing of the past. But 860.3 million words would be reading through that 19 and a half times. That's how many words you and I will say in our lifetime. Proverbs 10:19 reminds us that when words are many, sin is not lacking. James reminded us that if anyone is able to tame his tongue, that no man is able to tame his tongue, rather. So let's state the obvious. We believe that the gospel is for every person and for all of life. And so if the gospel is going to have any relevance, rev, rev, <laughs> relevance for the here and now, then that means that the gospel in some way is going to influence our speech. If the gospel really is for all of life, then it also must be for the 860-some-odd million words that you and I will say before we die. So let's consider how many words we speak in a day. Let's add to that our nonverbal daily communication— Let's add on top of that all of our digital communication, and let's simply acknowledge that the act of communication is vitally important to human beings. So follow me here. God's desire is that we as followers of Jesus, according to Colossians 3, would walk worthy of the Lord. God 
has enabled us to walk worthy of the Lord by uniting us to Jesus Christ. We call this union with Christ. We saw that in the beginning of chapter 3. And the effects of this gospel, this good news, spreads to all of life. Now, do you remember our definition for the gospel that we've repeated over and over again as we've gone through the book of Colossians? It's on the screen again. God the Father, by the Spirit, saves sinners and restores His creation through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is really good news. So what are the effects of that gospel, that good news, in everyday life? Well, we looked at this two weeks ago, or last week rather, and saw that since we're united to him, Jesus calls us to kill our idolatry. We saw this in verse 5. He says, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. And then if you go down to verse 8, But now put away all the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from, language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So the text is now telling us that part of what it means to be, according to chapter 3, verse 1, raised with Christ and setting our affections on things above and not on things of the earth, part of what that means is that we allow gospel realities to shape our speech and the underlying emotions that often control our speech. Or we could say it this way, because of our union with Christ, the gospel has a say in what we say and how we say it. The gospel has a say in what we say and how we say it. So, let's look at this passage under three headings. First, the problem with our communication. Second, the solution for our communication. And third, the effect on our communication. So, number one, the problem with our communication is this. Broken communication reflects our broken humanity. Now, Paul has just listed off multiple sins related to speech or the emotions underlying sinful speech. And rather than just dealing with them very generally, let's take each one so we understand exactly what he's talking about. These are alienating sins. These are sins that alienate one another, one person from another person. Sins which alienate people from one another, that divide a community, that separate people into camps. And that doesn't sound anything like our current cultural moment, does it? So, let's look at anger. What is anger specifically? It's, well, what we typically think of, an emotional expression of displeasure that is directed towards others. But perhaps you're thinking, so, is all anger wrong? What about righteous anger? What about that anger that makes you just kind of want to scream in the middle of a service? That sort of anger. No, what about that righteous anger that Scripture in places tells us we should have? Aren't there realities that we should truly be angry about? 
And the objection is a valid one. The answer is yes. In fact, there are multiple examples in Scripture in which individuals are righteously angry. There's a total of four, actually. In Exodus 32, Moses is righteously angry at the idolatry of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, King Saul is overcome with the Spirit of God and becomes angry at the destruction of his people. John the Baptist is incredibly angry when he confronts the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. And then in Acts 17, 16, Paul is angry in his spirit as he views the idolatry of those around him. So these are four examples when four different individuals in the Scriptures were righteously angry. And then there's another whole class of examples in the Psalms in particular where a psalmist moved by the Holy Spirit begins to sing of God's anger and his or her own anger towards the wicked who deliberately despise God and his revelation. But let's think about that for just a moment. If they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, that is the Spirit of Christ who is speaking through them. So as Christopher Ashe recounts in his book, Good and Angry, he says, their righteous indignation points us forward to the anger of the only man in human history who has been utterly pure and righteous in all his anger, Jesus of Nazareth. Far more often, however, we disguise our ungodly anger as righteous anger. Far more often, we are angry because we're defensive or we're inconvenienced or we're impatient, or we feel disrespected, or forgotten, or marginalized. These are not righteous motivations for anger. These are all self-referential. Now, in Col Colossians chapter 3, Paul is not condemning righteous anger. Those rare times in our lives when we are righteously angry over the destruction of a human life or the dishonoring of God in public by a public figure, or maybe because a, a people group are being oppressed or exterminated by another people group. These are righteous causes for anger. Rather, what Paul is condemning, what he's calling out, is the much more common anger that seeps through our words, that seethes in our hearts, and that separates us from one another. But then he goes on and he intensifies it. Not just anger, but wrath, that rage, that indignation against others. It's the same word we find in James chapter 1 verse 20 where we're told that the wrath of man does not bring about, bring about the righteousness of God. And if you look at verse 6 of Colossians 3, we see there is an individual that can express wrath in a righteous way. And who is that being? It's God. God's wrath is righteously directed. But he is the only one, because he is perfect, who can appropriately express wrath. One man says this, What is in view is such a powerful emotion 
that only God can be trusted to exercise it fairly. So maybe at this point, Dude Perfect's Rage Monster or the Hulk is an accurate picture of this type of emotion. Ridiculous, destructive, completely out of control. But then he goes on, not just anger and wrath, he moves on, he describes malice. What is malice? That's not a term we typically use in our 21st century American con- uh, context. Malice is a mean-spirited or vicious attitude or disposition towards others. It's a spitefulness that shows up when we begin to internalize wrongs or when we begin to otherize people. What do I mean by otherize? When we put them in an entirely different world from us so we have nothing in common with them and nothing to relate to in them. And then because of that, we justified our attitude towards them. Malice is insidious and it's ugly. Years ago, I had one young man open up to me about his battle with same-sex attraction. I was the first individual in his 20-some-odd years of life that had any inkling that he was same-sex attracted. And part of the reason for that was this story that he then related to me. He was in a family context or in a church context. I can't remember exactly the context, but his family are professing believers, so either one, it was a Christian context. He was surrounded by professing Christians, none of whom knew his battle with same-sex attraction. And homosexuality came up in the conversation. And one of the individuals in the circle said this, I wish we could all just round them up and get rid of them. A perfect example of malice. A mean-spirited, vicious attitude towards others that separates them outside of the borders of humanity, justifying any and all acts of evil against them, either committed in the mind or in actuality. And in this context, the malice was disguised as Christian. Paul's not done. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. This is actually the word for blasphemy. But in this context, the blasphemy is not directed towards God. That's why it's translated slander. It's directed towards other men and other women. It encompasses all speech that is reviling, denigrating, disrespectful, defamatory, I'm not even going to try to say that word, or abusive. Rumors and gossip would fall into this category as would passing along unsubstantiated facts. This sort of slander is heard in the voice of the husband telling his wife, you can't do anything right. Or the voice of the wife communicating to her husband, you never do anything. This is heard in the words of one Christian concerning another, you can't believe what I just heard about so-and-so. And sometimes that's even described as a prayer request, right? How many of us have felt what Thomas Watson described? 
the scorpion carries his poison in his tail, the slanderer in his tongue. Paul keeps going. Not just slander, but dirty language or obscene talk. It is that coarse, vulgar, dirty speech. It includes obscenities, and those obscenities are often directed towards other human beings. Not treating them as image bearers of God, but as if they're nothing more than animals to be loathed and despised and cursed and verbally assaulted. And when a culture has set aside as dirty, as filthy, as obscene certain words and phrases, even though they literally are quite, are quite literally just words, that's all they are, but when the culture has set them aside as obscene, Paul says those words have no place in the Christian community. None whatsoever. Put them all away. But he keeps going. He talks about lying, spreading falsehood about someone to their detriment, detriment, intentionally misleading others who deserve the truth. And before our minds jump to fake news, Paul is not concerned with media organizations and institutions. No, he is talking about individual believers living in community with one another or posting on social media articles without fact-checking them, or failing to be honest in all of our dealings. Or to paraphrase the Heidelberg Catechism, which we spoke to one another this morning, this word encompasses lying and deceit of every kind, failing to love the truth, failing to speak the truth candidly, and failing to openly acknowledge the truth. This is the problem with broken communication. Each of these sins dehumanizes others. The fact, that fact is precisely what makes them anti-gospel. The gospel calls us to remember that each of us is both beautiful, we are made in God's image after his likeness, and that is a beautiful thing, and yet the gospel frees us to remember that we are all each broken, damaged beyond our own ability to fix due to the curse of sin in the world and the presence of a sin nature within us and the sinful thoughts and acts that that sin nature produces. Broken and beautiful. When we fail to remember this reality, we begin to view ourselves as mostly beautiful, right? We are mostly in the right. We are mostly justified. Most of the time we're correct and we have an accurate understanding of reality and what is actually happening in space and time. Most of the time we are unmarred in our ability to discern situations and read people and minds, right? When we fail to remember the gospel, we view ourselves as mostly beautiful, beautiful and we view others as mostly broken, mostly wrong, hopelessly misguided, bent in every motivation, determined 
upon the destruction of something that we love, they are mostly broken. You are mostly broken when I fail to remember the gospel. And it's been this way since the garden. Satan's speech to Eve convinced her that God didn't have her best interest in heart. God was broken. He sowed doubt in her mind, and then he contradicted God and lied to Eve. And Eve was deceived, and then she disobeyed God, but Adam then willingly joined his wife in that rebellion against God. So then what does Adam do when God confronts him? Great, great move. He blames his wife. He doesn't take responsibility for his own sin. He dishes it off on the woman that God had given to him. Broken communication reflects our broken humanity. So let me ask a question. Are any of these sins doing damage to our humanity in this current cultural moment? And if you hesitate with an answer, just watch some videos on YouTube of the school board meetings that have occurred in the past 24 months. Or follow pretty much any politician from either side of the aisle on Twitter. Or just listen closely around the water cooler at work or hang around on the Zoom call for a few extra minutes after the meeting has ended. Do we see emotional expressions of displeasure directed towards others? Do we see rage or indignation against others? Do we see vicious attitudes and dispositions? Do we see slanderous speech that denigrates, disrespects, defames, and abuses? Do we hear vulgar speech and see falsehood being spread as fact? Friends, let's be clear here. What we're talking about is not a particular political party problem. What we're talking about is not even a uniquely American problem. This is a human problem. This is broken humanity. So, does the gospel enter this current mess that we call our American moment? And does it provide any answers? But before we answer that question, let's get a little more uncomfortable with this, shall we? Is communication any better within the church? Within the people who profess faith in the resurrected and risen King Jesus? It ought to be so. But so often from the pulpit down to the seats... The communication within the community of Jesus looks suspiciously like communication outside of the community of Jesus. We've all seen the clips or heard the stereotypes of angry preachers, right? The truth they may be communicating is completely invalidated by the way in which it is said, but it isn't just preachers. I recently saw a post on 
Nextdoor. Any of you use the Nextdoor app in your neighborhoods and communities? Oh, like three of us. Okay, for the rest of you, it's like Facebook for small communities-ish, sort of like that. And uh, I saw a particular individual who's very outspoken in our particular area. We'll call him party number one. Okay, so party number one has a less than positive perspective on Chattanooga and the broad gentrification that's happening. And he's got reasons for that. And he often states his opinions on Chattanooga as fact. And in this particular occasion, he made a lot of assumptions in what he stated. But that's kind of the norm for a social media platform, right? You just kind of put out there what you're thinking. It's a place for opining. It's not really a place for helpful dialogue. But then party number two shows up. And party number two is actually made up of two or three different people. And they gang up on party number one, and they begin to mock him for what he does. They look him up and find out, like, his living. They begin to mock him for what he does and denigrate him for making a statement and then not engaging with others when they ask questions of his statement. But it gets better. Party number three shows up and calls out party number two for ganging up on party number one saying you can disagree with party number one, but ganging up on him isn't a good look. So then, a lady from within party number two, the gang, she responds with some sass. And party number three then responds directly to that one individual with this. And it's painful. This is what she said. I'm quoting directly. Look above... And tell me you and the crew aren't being smug and self-righteous. A little research tells one you're involved in a faith-based service. Now this cattiness isn't very Christian-like, is it? Seriously, if you're going to act like that, at least be willing to be called out. Drop the mic. Ouch. When a follower of Jesus can be accused rightly by the watching world, what you are doing and saying isn't matching who you say you follow. Something's wrong. So let me put to you another question. Is there any relevance today for a 2,000-year-old gospel that frees people from being enslaved to inhuman and wicked speech that degrades humans made in the image of God, divides them, defames them, and disrespects them. Is there any place in our culture, any relevance for that sort of gospel? Yes, the gospel is relevant today in this cultural moment. Our broken communication reflects our broken humanity. But second, the solution for our communication. The gospel message creates a new humanity. Look at verses 6 through 11. Because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, 
since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So the gospel reminds us that we are all in this humanity thing together. But it goes beyond that, and it also reminds us that for those who are in Christ, the gospel changes everything. Follower of Jesus, you were not always in Christ. Once you followed the old man, you were living in the sort of lifestyle that completely deserves God's coming wrath. A lifestyle of rebellion that completely disregards his revelation, his authority, his benevolence, his grace, and supremely, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what am I saying? I'm saying that your life was marked by the life of Adam. Rebellion against God. Focused on yourself, choosing to live life your way. You were once part of that old humanity. But dear friend, you are no longer characterized by Adam. When you responded in faith and repentance to the gospel message, when you came to realize that the gospel is not just a set of facts to be understood, it's a message to be applied and internalized, at that moment, God united you by his grace to Jesus. You put off the old man and you have put on the new humanity. This new humanity is a corporate humanity. It's wrapped up in the supreme, perfect person, Jesus Christ. And he is renewing you even now in knowledge, recreating within you that image of God that was marred by the fall, restoring it from where Adam left it. The second Adam is recreating it. So the old earthly ways of dividing up mankind and otherizing one another, viewing others or treating other people or groups as intrinsically different and alien to ourselves, that's all been left behind. That's what Paul is saying in verse 11. In this new humanity, those old distinctions, which in Paul's day included circumcision and uncircumcision and Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, all of those distinctions in Christ evaporate. Christ is all and in all. So our broken communication reflects our broken humanity. The gospel message creates a new humanity. And so number three, we have the effect on our communication. Because of our union with Christ, the gospel has a say in what we say and how we say it. These ways of thinking and feeling and expressing that Paul says we must put off are all part of the old humanity. They have no place in the church. And from here, he's going to move on and begin to paint a picture of the beautiful gospel culture that God creates when a, a people come together, united by faith in Jesus Christ, begin to live out the realities. And it is a beautiful picture, and we'll begin to dive into that next week. 
But before we breeze through this section and get to that section, maybe it's appropriate that we pause for some self-evaluation. So consider your conversations with those closest to you. Your spouse, your friends, your family, your coworkers. Consider your recent social media interaction. Does your communication reflect the fact that you have been raised with Christ? Does your communication reflect the fact that your position has radically and fundamentally changed? You are in Christ. Or does your speech indicate you are not yet fulfilling your responsibility as a follower of Jesus to live in reality and to kill the idolatry at war in your heart that gives rise to these types of broken communication? Now, can we just all be honest here together this morning? In this list, there is something that tugs at your heart and tugs at my heart. Something in this list has a greater power in us than it should. And our instinct is to then make excuses, right? Well, if Paul had been in my circumstances, well, they don't understand this. Well, if God would tweak this about my life, then my speech might. But when we begin to make excuses, we are actually cutting ourselves off from the grace of the gospel and its power to change us. And we are giving in to the slavery of sin. So indulge me for just a moment as I use Paul Tripp's words that ought to bring both conviction and comfort. Because of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, there is hope that the tongue can do the good that God has ordained. None of us can say that we are too weak. If only I had more faith, if only I had a, a little more courage, if only I could think of the right things to say. None of us can blame our personalities. I'm just an extrovert, or I'm just too shy, or I'm sorry, I'm just not a morning person. None of us can blame our past. I was never given and a good example of communication. Or, I was always taught to fight back. Or, my parents never really spent any time teaching us how to communicate and solve conflict. No, none of us can blame the people around us. If I just had children who were more compliant, or if my husband were more loving and affectionate, then I would... Or if my wife weren't always criticizing me. Or if my boss were a little more appreciative of what I do for him every day. And none of us can blame our present situations. If only I had more time or if my job weren't so demanding. Yes, we are living with sinners. Our schedules are busy. Many of us were raised in negative environments. And we have all been given different personalities that help and hinder us in different ways. But this is the point. God has given us his spirit, not in spite of, but because of these realities. 
The Holy Spirit was given so that we can do the will of God even though we are sinners in a fallen world. So that his life and strength would overwhelm all the effects of our own sin and the sins of others against us. So that we can actually do the will of God. God's power is not distant and dormant. It is at work within us. So friends, the gospel frees us to admit our broken communication. It frees us to then repent of it by confessing it to God and turning in faith to take hold of Christ once again, empowered by the Spirit to put off this type of communication. The tongue has the power of life and death within it. And because of the gospel, we have been freed to speak words of grace of truth, of life, of hope, and of freedom in a world that desperately needs that message. So brothers and sisters, let's pray by God's grace that he would allow the gospel to have its say in what we say and how we say it. Would you pray with me? Almighty Father, we humbly submit ourselves before you this morning, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word that has been sown among us, that it would take such deep roots within us that the enemy couldn't snatch it away, the burning heat of persecution can't cause it to wither, and the thorny cares of this life could not choke it out. But rather, that as seed grown in good ground, this good word would bring forth much fruit as your wisdom has appointed. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.